Welcome to Animation Celery. Crunchy conversations about classic cartoons. Playing around the world and coming home, my friends. It's me, Matsy. And I'm Micah. On Animation Celery, we assign each other cartoons to watch. And next week, we review and discuss them. We gave each other a couple of shorts each. I'm going to be looking at The Great Piggy Bank Robbery, as well as Trail Mix-Up. Matsy was given Seaside Adventure, as well as The Fresh Vegetable Mystery. But as always, up top, we just goof off. Uh, so what's going on, Matsy? I said I was going to watch that Bad Simpsons episode, but then I decided that it wouldn't be interesting to talk about, so I didn't. Okay. Because <laughs> we've talked about The Simpsons, like, at least two or three times already now, and, like, I could just come in and say, yeah, I watched that episode. It's <laughs> it's as bad as that random YouTube video said. Yeah. I I don't know. So I just I decided to skip it. But I did stumble upon one thing that I thought was kind of interesting and tangentially related, because last week you were talking about uh, the new voice of Dr. Hibbert. Right. And... We kind of discussed the Simpsons' new policy of having people only voice uh, characters of their own race. Yeah. Uh, on a related note, I watched the most recent two episodes, the first two episodes of the new season of Squidbillies. Now, Squidbillies, for anyone who doesn't know, it's an adult swim cartoon. It has an, that adult level of humor, not entirely dissimilar from to uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Uh, the concept of the show is that it's a family of four uh, Appalachian mud squids. Hmm. They're an endangered species. They're like the last four. And they, you know, they're redneck stereotypes. It's like a satire of rural redneck idiots, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, they live in rural Georgia because they're an endangered species. You know, the, the people in the town have to tolerate their presence because they're endangered. They can't get rid of them. All right. Um, now, the reason that this is related is that one of the main, that the, the patriarch of the family uh, named Early was voiced by a guy named Unknown Hinson, huh. who is a musician and comedian. Okay. Last year, during the peak of the Black Lives Matter um, deal. <laughs> yes, okay. I, I don't know what to call it, because like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to... Trivialize it or... Yeah, or, yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. Yeah, that fad. You know, right. but like, you know, it was it was at a height. It was at a frenzy in the summer of 2020. And unknown Hinson got in some trouble because he <laughs> he shared on social media some racist and sexist comments in reply to some supportive comments made on social media by Dolly Parton. Oh, boy. He's a real life squid, Billy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Apparently. Yeah. Um, and so they fired him from the show. All right. And so when I saw that there were new episodes, I thought, well, I want to see what they've done with Early's voice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and the answer is that Early is now voiced by black comedian Tracy Morgan. Oh, OK. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird when one, you know, it's like Dr. Hibbert, you know, he's had this this character's had this voice for 12 seasons. I haven't watched all 12 seasons, of course, but and yeah. then all of a sudden I hear him talk and like <laughs> he sounds distinctly black now. Squidbillies hasn't been on all this time, has it? No, well, I don't know. Like it like this is from 20 that? years ago, right? This well, this this season, this is the 13th season and it's just started. Like they're just two episodes into the new season now. Hmm. I don't think it's been on every single year. It's I think it started in like 2008 or so. Okay. Um, and it's, it's had 12 seasons. This is the 13th. So I don't think it's been going every year. Um, it's kind of like, I guess it's like, you know, Aqua Teen Hunger Force will be like, this is our last episode. And then they'll go away for a while. And there's actually, wait, we have, we have like three new seasons. Now this is the last episode. Okay. And now here's the movie and now we're done. But wait, now there's another season. I think Squidbillies might be kind of like that. Mm. Um, with that in mind, they say this is the last season. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I just thought that was interesting to see like this from this other side of like, <laughs> I wonder how, I mean, I don't care if he's a jerk, he's a jerk, but I kind of wonder how unknown Henson feels about Tracy Morgan taking his job. I, I, you know, I, I watch all things Norm Macdonald. Of course. And, uh, um, there was an anecdote. I can't remember who his writing partner was in the thing, but. They would purposefully write scripts for Tracy Morgan that had a lot of S's because they knew he would stumble on pronouncing them. (laughs) (laughs) But it actually worked to his credit in some sketches because it was funnier because he couldn't say the words. (laughs) Right. Ah, Squidbillies. 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 Yeah. It's an okay show. I mean, you know, you can't expect much from it. It's like Aqua Teen Hunger Force. You just kind of watch it and like, okay, there's, you know, offensive jokes. And, and you know, I love, it's, I said it has the same kind of philosophy or the, the same kind of humor to some extent as Aqua Teen Hunger Force. It also has two thirds of the cast of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Okay. I always love Dana Snyder. He, mm. in that, he is granny. Uh, which is a pretty amusing character design is this tiny little pink squid in one of those like old person Walker frames. Okay. But she's oh, just right. like, yeah, but she's just on top of it. Like she's like holding on to it with two tentacles just suspended in the top. And she moves by like jumping the thing around. Like it's, it's not helpful to her walking at all, but it's just really funny to have this Walker that, you know, doesn't actually impact her movement. One of these times you should recommend uh, like Adult Swim things for me because I mm. skip most of it. Like all all this kind of uh, programming, I, I just kind of I would skip it and then maybe come back for Venture Brothers once in a while. But <laughs> well, I don't know how much Adult Swim I've watched. I mean, I saw Robot Chicken for a while, but that got tiresome. Yeah, um, I I sat down and watched all of Aqua Teen Hunger Force once. Actually, I watched the movie because I wasn't convinced that the movie was real. Okay. I th- I thought it was a joke. Like I kept seeing, it's like, oh yeah, Aqua Teen Hunger Force: Colon Movie Film for Theaters, 
And I was like, I don't remember any advertising for this. Did like this can't be real. This must be like they're joking that they made a movie. Yeah. And then I saw the DVD in the video store and I was like, okay, I guess they actually did make it. And so one day I sat down and watched it. I was like, I I still not convinced. I need proof that this movie happened. Right. Right. It was thinking it'd be like an empty case or something. <laughs> well, I didn't know what to, I was like it was pretty convincing seeing like a DVD case in the store. Yeah. But I was it was still it's like they're so weird like there's no this is crazy it's still gotta and be so a practical I, joke <laughs> yeah yeah you just and put it you put down. it in and it's like a paul newman movie or something instead yeah 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 <laughs> no i i sat down and watched and was like okay yeah they're they actually did make a movie it kind of explains the the ending credits of aqua teen hunger force is this weird like origin story where they come out of a pyramid and fly right. through space and meet a different link and stuff that's in the movie huh like the movie actually has their canonical backstory, which follows the plot that's given in the credits of the show. <laughs> OK, it's pretty cool. Hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I like I said, I like Dana Snyder. I think he's really funny. Um, I've I've gushed about him in the ghost and Molly McGee. Hmm. And, but, that, and yeah, he's and he's in Squidbillies. Yeah. Now you get to hear him play against Tracy Morgan. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's true. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Um, so there's my dumb stuff. Um, <laughs> say something more interesting, Micah. Save uh, me. Well, you know we have a new sponsor. Ah, yeah. Um, let me get this copy out of here. Uh, so remember the original expert in general services, Mister Beetleman. He's expanding <laughs> right. his operation outside of Peaceful Pines. Oh. Yeah, whatever you need, he's your man. He'll do your plumbing, plan your party, make a radio ad, give a guided tour, mentor a youngster, work a farm, book your hotel, exercise the living. Uh, I think that's supposed to be exercise. Uh, he'd even call his grandpa to keep your grandpa company. There's nothing he won't do. Don't call no cupcake or goldfish cracker for general services. There's only one name to remember. Beetleman, Beetleman, Beetleman. All right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like the uh, I like the reference to cupcake and goldfish cracker. <laughs> um, are those are those things like have you been watching Beetlejuice and like those are all things that he did over the course of the show? I didn't watch them all, but I did. <laughs> I did look them up. Yeah. Them. <laughs> um, uh, another thing uh, up top here. I have to make a correction. Mm. Last week, I said that the two cartoons I gave you were two-color process. They're not. They're three-color. They've, oh. got, they've got the miracle of the color blue in them. <laughs> I, I guess I just misremembered in order to seem like a big man or something. But they're not that old where uh, the patent was in effect for Disney with three-color. Mm. Um, okay, I have, I have a non-cartoon thing to talk about, but it's bugging me. So, All right. Um, uh, during this pandemic, I've not seen the Marvel movies nah. uh, as they've come to theaters, but I recently watched Black Widow and now recently Shang-Chi. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of taper these descriptions, seeing as how you've not really watched many Marvel movies at all. No. Uh, Shang-Chi is like the Kung Fu guy. Okay. So I watched it and I thought, this is okay, but 
it's had this uh, recurring effect afterwards where I get more and more annoyed the more I think about it. <laughs> so I've got three main points on what bugs me about Shang-Chi. One, okay. the star is Simu Liu of uh, Kim's Convenience. So he's he's Canada's own Simu Liu. And I, I think they uh, underutilize him in there. He just doesn't get a chance to be as charming as he should be. There's too many characters eating up the time and he kind of ends up as a kind of flat hero. That's pretty wild casting. What? I mean, you know, I appreciate like it's just hearing, you know, the guy from Kim's Convenience. I'm like, what? It is. It is. But, you know, he's he's tall and muscular and he's got comedic chops. So I guess he makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so the last third of this movie takes place in Ta Lo, which is like the realm of Chinese gods, basically. Okay. And it's astonishing how boring that part of the movie is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the first the first bit in San Francisco and people that have seen the trailers see that bus fight. Really cool. And then it's like at a fight club in uh, Macau. And also kind of neat as a setting. Mm. And then Ta Lo just seems so tiny. I mean, they make some CG mythical beasts there. Uh, mm. But these people are supposed to be kind of like gods. And we see one of them early on that she's, you know, uh, bending, if you will. She's like <laughs> air bending and making mm. leaves fly around and whatever. But these other guys just seem so pedestrian. They seem just kind of primitive and living like it's a small village and there still seems to be too few few buildings for the number of people there as well. <laughs> uh, so it's, yeah, astonishing how it gets boring once they go to the fantastic place. But um, my third point, so like, like, like I've said, you, you haven't seen most of these Marvel movies, but uh, Iron Man's arch nemesis is the Mandarin, a semi-problematic villain because he's kind of this tall Chinese guy with a Fu Manchu and yeah but I think he's kind of a cool villain he doesn't really appear in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe when they made Iron Man 3 they had the Mandarin played by uh, every man is in every race Ben Kingsley <laughs> except he's not the Mandarin he's a proxy he's just like an actor pretending to be the Mandarin for, I think his name is Slattery, the scientist who made the extremist effect where people become super hot and explosive. At any rate, <laughs> he's the real Mandarin, except mm -hmm. he's not because this movie's out now, uh, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. And if we find out that the real Mandarin was some other guy played by <laughs> Tony Leung. But the thing is, is they keep failing. They've, they've, they've gotten a little closer, but they're still making not the Mandarin again. Maybe in 10 years, <laughs> we'll find out he wasn't the Mandarin. There's another one. <laughs> so like his ability, uh, the comic version of him, he's got 10 rings that he adapted from alien technology and they all have a different superpower. And I've heard it was conceived that the reason they changed this is because he'd be too close to the infinity gauntlet. I like <laughs> having a bunch of gemstones on your hand that do different things. Right. Right. But I say still go for it because they're not like they're wild in variety, but they don't have like universe altering scope. So I think you could just watch them go ham, firing them all like crazy. <laughs> what he's got instead are 
like you know the the iron like bands or rings that you'd have around your forearms for uh like a rugged kind of hand-to-hand fighting sure except these are magical and uh the Tony Lung Mandarin can fire them. He can do lots of things with them. He can kind of make a force field. He can fire them off individually or as a group. He can uh, kind of use them to grab things. Or uh, in some cases, he blasts the ground underneath them to propel himself. Mm-hmm. But it's like an oversimplification. Uh, they, they do that in a lot of movies where they simplify the villains down to a maybe one concept. <laughs> um, whereas like, the Mandarin, the comic Mandarin has so many powers that some of them even kind of seem a little redundant, right? Because he's got <laughs> he's got ten rings. He's got one on each finger and thumb. Yeah. And I kind of wanted I wanted to see that. I wanted to see him like blasting f- freeze rays and creating illusions and controlling minds and you know using telekinesis and stuff. Basically, mm. I wanted him to be the Marvel's version of a Dungeons and Dragons beholder, just going nuts and firing <laughs> in every direction. Sure, yeah. But no. No, they don't. And, and you know what? The other thing I want him to be was an unforgivably evil villain. Mm. They've equivocated too much on these villains lately to where it's like, oh, you can see his point of view. But when they go halfway like that, it makes no sense anyway. So you, you can you can kind of sympathize with him in this movie, but he's still like a terrorist. He still topples nations and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy is still evil. Um, anyway, made me really upset. You have anything like that? Like, uh, <laughs> maybe cartoon that, that just makes you angry to think about the more you do. Oh gosh. I'm, I am sure that I can think of something if given enough time. Yeah. There's the one that popped into my head as you were talking about, it's bugging me and I got to talk about it. Yeah. This is something that's <laughs> of all things, centaur world. Okay. Now, I was, you know, you talked bullish. about in the past. I was, I was bullish on yeah. Centaur World. You not as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I thought about it, there was one thing that kind of made me go, "Hey, wait a minute." Yeah. In the first episode, the horse goes to Centaur World, and she meets up with the herd of centaurs, and she's, you know, she wants to get away. She wants to find her rider. Mm-hmm. And she is, she finds a dome over the, I don't know, valley or whatever forest that they're in uh, for protection. Like, the I don't know if Wamawink put it there or she at least knows about it. Right. Um, but it's this protective dome that a horse and, and the other uh, centaurs can't get out of. Now, presumably because they... We're at war with a ruthless horde of invading warriors, as Glendale sings. Mm. Presumably, this dome also keeps villains from getting in. Would okay. would you say that? Would you say that's a fair? I mean, it's not explicitly said. Right. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is actually. I well, want to think about that. But yeah, they they live a like a facile kind of life where you know it's just playing around and eating and yeah yeah. And so so here's the thing. If presumably nobody can get in this dome and they're worried about what's outside, why, particularly Wamawink, yeah. why was Wamawink so happy when someone new showed up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, right. if, if she's gone to the lengths of like, let's keep everybody safe, here's a dome, nobody gets in or out, 
And then somebody new shows up and she's like, oh, hooray! Especially someone who doesn't, who is obviously not a centaur. Yeah. And the more I thought about that after the fact, I'm like, that's a, that's a hole. Yeah, plot holes like that usually don't materialize mm. in act one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I but I'm sure, yeah. like, I'm I'm going to think about this now. I'm going to think about something where, you know, something shows up in a, a thing and it just makes me go, oh, you, mm, you screwed it up. I'll tell you one that aggravates me to this day. Uh-huh. Uh, years ago, I watched this anime called Hana. Mm. And the premise of it is that two girl, two, two young women are, are moving to Tokyo and they meet on train and they happen to have the same name. So one of them is like a, a naive girl who's in over her head. And the other one is like a cool punk rock girl. Yeah. So it kind of is going to be like them becoming adults. Right. And, and finding out how to live. And so I was like really into that seeing them get their apartment and sharing and, 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 you know, getting jobs and whatever. Um, Really cool. And then at one point her, her uh, musical career takes off and it kind of loses that. Right. Because not everybody is (laughs) a famous musician. Mm, Yeah. And then the second season is just a lot of nothing. It's just like a lot of ennui. People talking really, it's like, it's like the stereotype of a French film, <laughs> but I'm pot, uh, I'm pot committed at this point. Right. So I'm sticking mm. with it. Like thinking, oh, come on, this is, it's going to turn. Something's going to happen. And then something does happen. This big development for, for the, uh, like the country girl, Hana, mm-hmm. um, it builds and then it just ends. It ends. <laughs> and I don't know, I'll semi spoil it. Like. She makes a decision that is so hurtful to everybody that I cannot believe the ending is them having a reunion at their old apartment. And they're just like, that's our Hana. As opposed to, you know, like, F, F Hana, forget her. Turn her out, kick her down the stairs. <laughs> it makes me so angry that I was so into that from its opening. And then that it just kind of dragged me through a lot of boredom for... The second season, only to give like the the sniff at some redemption, and then once again pull it out from underneath me. Makes me angry. <laughs> you know, one th- this isn't a cartoon thing, but yeah. um, it's something that I've always it's always stuck with me. And every time I think about it, I kind of go, "Somebody explain this." Star mm-hmm. Trek. Um, there's an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation where. They find this uh, place in space. I think it's a Dyson sphere or something. And they find Montgomery Scott, Scotty. And like the theme of this oh, episode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the theme of this episode. It's like, hey, Scotty is in the new Star Trek, right? Yeah. And there's two things about it that bug me. One is when they first find him and they say that they're on the Enterprise. Scotty's like, the Enterprise? Oh, I bet James Kirk himself brought the old girl out of mothballs to come find me. Oh, right. In Star Trek Generations, Scotty was one of the only original cast members who saw Kirk presumably die. Hmm. Like, as far as that era of Star Trek, James Kirk is dead. And so, 
years later, he's like thinking, oh, Kirk must have got the Enterprise. That's a hole. But the bigger hole, this one drives me crazy. It's the same episode. Scotty is drunk and nostalgic and he goes to the holodeck and he asks to see the bridge of the Enterprise. And he, you know, there's this bit where he has to specify like NCC 1701, no bloody A, B, C or D. Mm -hmm. And the holodeck makes the bridge of the Enterprise. Why did he want to go to the bridge and not engineering? Right. (laughs) He's never on the bridge. He was at home. Like he loved being an engineering of the enterprise. The, 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 the bridge was where he went when something was wrong and he had to stop in and say hi. Like he was probably teleported to the bridge more than he ever walked to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It drives me bonkers every time I think about that scene. I guess it's iconic and engineering is not. Yeah. You in high school uh, were part of a Star Trek parody. Right. And the Scotty equivalent wasn't even in it because it was just the intercom. (laughs) They would just always do this shot of the intercom with his voice coming out. Hmm. That's how not on the bridge he was. (laughs) He wasn't even on the bridge in the parodies. Anyway, that's my anger. By the way, I'm, I'm compiling, I'm compounding my errors here. The series is Nana, not Hana. I had Hana on the brain. <laughs> it's, it's not, I was thinking these, as I was saying, like, don't they get around the problem? Nana's like eight. Don't they get around the problem by start calling her eight instead of, uh, so that they can differentiate the two? Anyway, it's, it's Nana. That's the series you shouldn't watch. <laughs> okay, or, I will or watch do, Nana. Or do if you like being angry. <laughs> I'll just watch Star Trek if I want to be angry. Right, right. Uh... Why don't we go somewhere even wackier than outer space? You have a uh, surreal cartoon, right? Yeah, boy, what's weirder than outer space? Uh, apparently inside a seashell. Yeah. So this is called Seaside Adventure. It's a Terry tune from 1951 uh, directed by Manny Davis, which is a name that sounds really familiar for some reason. Like there's a Manny Davis now. Oh. And I'm, I just can't place it like why does that name maybe it's just because it's so generic Hmm. anyway so this is what this is uh it opens with a little sing song about the classic old woman who lived in a shoe and had so many children she didn't know what to do and in this case since it's a cartoon and we're talking about myriad children it's a family of rabbits Hmm. um the presumably the oldest child jack jack rabbit i guess Clever. Goes, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Top tier. Um, He goes to check on his mother's crying at how poor they are. She has a weird voice where she's like, oh, Jack, we're so poor. (laughs) (laughs) It like warbles like that. Yeah. And Jack cheers her up just by saying, don't worry, mother, I'll take care of you. And all is happy. The end. Mm hmm. But no, he actually has to do stuff, too. He heads out with his bindle to make his fortune. And before long, he finds a beach and he watches as the breaking waves, which are depicted as horses, drag a shell onto the beach. Micah, do you get this reference? It feels like I see this often where like the the foamy crest of waves 
is horses. There might be some mythological thing. It sounds like a Greek yeah. thing. Uh, mm. I mean, I, it's not hard to envision. No, I guess it's just yeah. It just seems like something that pops up every now and then. And I'm like, what's the reference here? Hmm. Anyway. So he sees this big shell and he looks inside and sees nothing and goes to walk away. But then a voice <laughs> from inside the shell greets him and invites him in. And so he does what any young boy would do when a mysterious voice invites him into a suspicious cranny. He heads on in. Yeah. Inside or slash on the other side of the shell. It's an Alice in Wonderland situation of this strange new world where he immediately encounters a turtle who lets him ride in his shell like a boat. Mm. And then the shell boat flies into space and around the man in the moon. And Jack eventually spills out and climbs a stairway of stairs to a strange forest in the clouds. There... Jack is alternately frightened by and frolics with these creepy and yet cheerful ambulatory trees. It's it, it, like they don't seem to mean him any harm. They're just smiling the whole time and playing well, this whistly song on an organ. Kind of. It's weird that he gets spooked by the guy playing the organ. Yeah. A neat organ, by the way, with like, you know, tree pipes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but then he's. <laughs> all keen to be picked up by these two trees that eventually just dump him down. <laughs> well, yeah, he's like worried at first and then they take him by the arms and that makes him happy. <laughs> <laughs> this, and then he this, skips, this kid's weird. <laughs> he skips along with him while and then they drop him and then he gets scared again. Yeah. So he runs away and he finds a frog with a crown relaxing by a pond. Now, at first, this frog has eyelashes, which is cartoon speak for female. Okay. But then the frog summons a harem of dancing girl frogs, at which point the eyelashes go away. So it's a frog king, I guess. They were very progressive. Yeah. It's non-binary frog. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Jurassic Park taught us that amphibians can change their gender when there's like, there's too many females around. So one of them turns into a male. Well, yeah. And usually the sexual dimorphism of frogs is that the females are much bigger. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Anyway. And then, then there's a bird. There's, it looks, it's pink yeah. like a flamingo, but it looks enough like a stork that I thought that a baby was about to be delivered. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in this cartoon, anything goes right. Right. But no, it's actually doing what a bird does. And it circles down from the sky to snatch the frog king away. Now, in a ridiculous cartoon, this might be the most ridiculous part. Yeah. Which is that Jack, uh, he grabs a mushroom and then he just flies after the bird. (laughs) He's using his ears as like airplane wings and his tail buzzes around like a propeller. I got to say, I got to say that I better buy Jack's spinning propeller rabbit tail. Then tails from Sonic the Hedgehog and his two spinning tails. <laughs> I can never reconcile what's going on there. Are they changing position and like twisting up into a knot? You're this, absolutely right. Yeah. Is his butt all wound up? Anyway. So you're, you're totally right. Yeah. So yeah, Jack just flies and he doesn't even like think about it. He's, he just knows he can do it. He just grabs this mushroom and whoop. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
So he bombs the bird with the mushroom, which has basically no effect. And then he like bombs the bird with himself, which bashes the feathers off its body. So it looks like a cooked chicken, but just the body part, because it's still like the head and wings and everything. It's still flying around with the the feather, uh, the, the frog. So then he like harasses it for a while and finally ends up landing on his head and just batters him until the frog king is freed. And the Frog King falls into the safety of the Big Dipper, which mm. generally contains milk in cartoons or at least yep. water that they didn't color. Yeah. Uh, Jack then flies the frog back to the ground and is rewarded when the amphibian monarch summons a fountain of gold coins. Jack dives into the coins and the whole pile of money flies back out of the shell just as mother and the other children are walking by. And so the cartoon ends with the rabbit family, including the now young and hot and spry mother who was an old woman. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they all dance around the shoe home, which they have frittered away their riches on by encrusting it with jewels. Yeah. And it's now a uh, high heeled pump. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is much less spacey than roomy than a boot. Like. Yeah. Yeah, that's not that's not the right home for, you know, eight rabbits. Hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that she turned into a hot rabbit. <laughs> I like. Well, how could I not? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, dang, the little old lady rabbit who lived in a shoe got her groove back. <laughs> that joke, yeah. courtesy of Raven. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, your description of this plot is poggers. First of all. Oh, thank you. Uh, also, I did, boo. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did the same thing. Uh, she, her workstation's across from me. And I watched this cartoon and I stopped just to experiment and describe the plot of it. To okay. see how crazy it would sound. <laughs> and, yeah, it basically said the same stuff, you know, that yeah, his ears as an airplane. And yeah. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it's 1951. That's yeah. that's kind of late for. Well, I I guess there's all kinds of different things at play here, but this looks like a really old cartoon. Well, like, it's not preserved, I guess. Yeah, right? I guess, but also just the style of it, you know, like the way that the. Well, I think I think like the the Gandhi gooses I've given you to watch are black and white, so I think Terry yeah. Tunes kind of stumbled along with time, you know. They did. I I looked this up. They they were kind of hesitant. You know, they were they were like the last studio to get sound and they were the last studio to get yeah. color like they Terry Tunes was really behind the time for most of its existence. And by by choice, like the yeah. guy, Paul Terry, I think his name was. Yeah, he was just he was just not interested in, you know, he's basically he to give you an example. He was thinking about making a movie uh, when when uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out. Mm-hmm. He was thinking about making a movie that was an ad- adaptation of King Lear starring Farmer Alfalfa. <laughs> okay. And but when the uh, Disney's next films, which were Pinocchio and I can't remember what the third one was. And then another studio made, I think it's like Mr. Bug Goes to Town or something like right. basically the three animated features that came after Snow White were flops mm. and that made Paul Terry go, okay, well obviously this 
full-length animated feature thing is not going anywhere, so forget it. Hmm. So, yeah, that's that's actually um, pretty worthwhile mentioning, is that, like, Terry Toons look old just because they were so, you know, it was by design. Like, Paul Terry just didn't modernize as much as other studios did. I'll say, beautifully weird, though. Yeah, it is. It's really strange. Um, not a lot of voice or sound. Like, something I noticed was that, like, there's, you don't really hear the buzzing of his tail. He rarely right. says anything. Like, there's, he just has a couple lines at the beginning, and the mother has a couple lines at the beginning, and a little line at the end. Even when the mother's crying, like, she looks in the right. cupboard, and she's sitting and crying, but it's silent. And it, presum- it it seems to wake up the seven children and they go to see what's wrong, but it's silent. Right, right. Well, there's a definite... <laughs> I, I guess there's a reason why these have receded to the background. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I was thinking about our first podcast and <laughs> I gave you that Ant and the Aardvark to listen to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Watch. And right. uh, I was thinking about how the music in that is so pathetic that it just <laughs> repeats constantly. It's that da 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 da. It just loops the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it's I don't know. It's it's not great, but it sounds right for that cartoon. You know, like it it sounds the way that cartoon looks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, would you say this cartoon sounds the way it looks? <laughs> I kind of wish there was more sound in. Like it's yeah. You know, there were things I noticed, like the the pathetic little sploosh of things falling in the water. Yeah. Like like somebody just kind of poured a bathtub and like splished their hand in it. But it's got, you know, it's got all the 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 man in the moon. Um, right. He's got these big floppy ears kind of. I almost I mean, I almost wonder if they were trying to model him after Dopey from Snow huh. White. But hmm. at the same time. This was like, what, 12 years or something or more after Snow White? Like Snow <laughs> yeah. White was old news at this point. So maybe I'm maybe I'm all the way wrong. Well, as one you thing, see, they're behind the curve the whole time. So maybe one, one thing I forgot to look up. I'm going to do that right now. Yeah. Uh, Disney's Alice in Wonderland movie. OK. 1951. Same year. So they wouldn't have seen it, but they would have known it was in production, I guess. I guess it depends on when it premiered. It's like, well, you're right. They would have known it was in production because these movies take like four years to make. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So are you saying this is like the mockbuster, like the... uh, the DVDs that you see at the dollar store. <laughs> it's the well, real Alice in Wonderland seaside adventure. I don't know. Like it would have, um, you know, seaside adventure would have been the animated short supporting movies at this time. Yeah. And you know, there's a certain, I, I guess there's a certain, um, intelligence to, Oh, you want to, you can go see this animated Alice in Wonderland, but you really want to watch the, the cartoons at the beginning of other movies. So why don't you watch this Alice in Wonderland and then you get to see another movie, too. You don't have to spend a whole movie watching this. Thing. <laughs> or if you didn't like it, don't see it either. <laughs> Otherwise, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's all speculation on my part. But um, 
Yeah, so a delightfully weird cartoon that looks more old-fashioned than it was compared to other cartoons that were coming out in 1951. Hmm. Hooray. An interesting okay. thing that I had no idea existed, and I'm glad that I've watched. Right, well, how about we spin back five years to Ooh. a cartoon that looks about when it should <laughs> have come out, I guess. Okay. Um, the Great Piggy Bank Robbery, mm-hmm. directed by Bob Clampett. In 1946. All right. This is our first instance of Daffy Duck. Woohoo! Which is actually a thing he says, I guess. So, at the farm, Daffy awaits the delivery of the mail for his comic book. The excitement of Dick Tracy's comic adventure hypes Daffy up to the point where he fantasizes what it would like to be his hero, and he accidentally punches himself unconscious. In his resulting nap, he dreams of being the famous detective Duck Twacy. We get faked out by overhearing his threat to pin something on someone. In the slang of the time, you prove someone committed a crime when you pinned something on them. Yeah. It turns out that he's just playing pin the tail on the donkey by himself. Just then, the phone rings. And I like, okay, Bob Clampett's known as a crazy director. Yeah. I like that his eye opens through the blindfold rather than the cloth being moved up or aside. <laughs> um, so he has a series of phone calls that announce the theft of many piggy banks. Daffy dismisses all of these cases as small time until he finds out that his own piggy bank has been stolen. After sending a cab on its own to follow that car and berating Sherlock Holmes for being on his turf... Daffy just takes a streetcar labeled with its destination to Gangster Hideout. And interestingly, the streetcar uh, driver is Porky Pig. <laughs> That's kind of weird, eh? Yeah. Um, so, at the hideout, a patch of ground before the uh, doorbell is labeled as Trap Door. But Daffy is too clever for his own good. When he tries to ring the doorbell from the other side of the stoop, he drops down the real trapdoor. In the dank room, he follows footprints up the wall, across the ceiling, and down the other wall to a mouse hole, from which an intimidating oversized mouse man emerges and menaces. Shaken, Daffy retreats into the darkness, then finds himself surrounded by the strangest rogues gallery. Now, Dick Tracy, his crooks are known for being deformed and disfigured, But these, yeah, these go to cartoony extremes. (laughs) They include snake eyes, 88 teeth, hammerhead, pussycat, Batman, doubleheader, pickle puss, pumpkin head, neon noodle, jukebox jaw, and wolfman. I'm not going to describe how each of these looks. (laughs) I'll tweet one or two of them, but I (laughs) I encourage all of you stalkers to at least check out this roll call. Uh, Me, I remember distinctly liking Neon Noodle. You know, the reason that this cartoon was on my mind is because I was thinking about it for a spooky Halloween. Like when I gave you the um, water, water, every hair. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, that could be a scary thing because I was thinking specifically of this scene. Yeah. And then I watched it and realized that the rest of it wasn't very spooky. But still, because because this part introducing all this rogues gallery 
mm. burned into my brain. It's one of those cartoon oh, yeah. things you you cannot forget. I, I bet every 40-year-old North American listening right now knows <laughs> this cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, so after this, Duck Twacy runs away from the monstrous cabal, plus some airplanes that took off from Flat Top's flathead. Um, he gets cornered by Rubberhead, whose head is a pencil eraser. He does literally rub him out. Uh, that's another. Luckily, that's another thing that's burned into my brain. I'm yeah. gonna out. See? Yeah, I was never good at doing that. That thing, you know. Like, <laughs> I I don't funny. know if I did it correctly because my headphones were shaking on my ears and I couldn't hear right. myself. <laughs> so I guess I'll find out when I edit this podcast if it works. Uh, uh, I think it was pretty good. Okay, um, thank you. So luckily, Daffy emerges fine and unerased from the closet. Then, with a hand grenade, a machine gun, and some wrestling, he defeats all of the hoodlums. And then he finds his piggy bank and all of the others. It's now that he wakes up to find out that he's not kissing his piggy bank, but an actual pig and its muddy sty, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> This causes only momentary alarm because both the animals are loony and they whoop. And uh, yeah, that's just kind of the end. <laughs> I'll say, I didn't remember that Porky was the conductor on that trolley. Mm. And I find it weird that he wasn't the pig at the end. Huh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess they need a, you know, it's 1946. They can't have him kissing a male pig. It's got to be a female. Oh, it happens all the time in these cartoons. Well, yes, but... I think Bugs kisses like 20 times more male characters than Bugs female. Bugs kisses everyone that he meets. How many <laughs> yes. times has Elmer Fudd been kissed by that rabbit? Yeah, meningitis across the Looney Tunes. <laughs> okay, so, as I say, this is one of the most memorable cartoons. Yeah. This one, like, we've mentioned before that the way these cartoons used to be shown on TV, it was a mishmash. It was just whatever was six or seven minutes. So that could be Popeye, Warner Brothers, Woody Woodpecker. Everything was played together. Yeah. Um, and darn if this one wasn't special. Huh. You, you saw it come up and you're excited. And most especially for him running through those uh, those crooks oh, and getting yeah. to see their close-ups. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, I just love that. I love the way he says, Neon Noodle! Especially after stuttering on a bunch of P names. Yeah, yeah. P -p Pickle Puss. Yeah. Um, I like that most of these, uh, most of them are not even animated at all, or they're barely animated. Like uh, Snake Eyes' eyes are kind of moving a little bit. Yeah. But I like that the last guy, Wolfman, gets the most animation. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, rough. Awoo! Rough. <laughs> This is like, it's kind of <laughs> like in Ren and Stimpy where they'll go to a shot and it'll be like painted like a background. Yes. Extra grotesque. Like, it's the same thing here. Well, you've set me up here. Mm. Uh, a, a long while ago, I read uh, John Kay, uh, the creator of Ren and Stimpy. I read his blog. Mm. He had a entry, an essay about this very cartoon. Oh. He was a great admirer of it and he kind of broke it down as being like narratively bizarre that the way this cartoon works is that we have a setup where Daffy's waiting for his comic so that he can knock himself out and go into a dream sequence where he has another setup where he's a detective in his office and gets phone calls 
like minutes in, we finally get to this uh, Dick Tracy villain series of jokes. And you can see how that really appealed to him, obviously, right? Yeah, As you yeah. say, those, those wacky painted close-ups. Mm-hmm. Even just the animation in general, you know? Oh, yeah. It's like just the way that Daffy like kind of marches along looking through his magnifying glass. Like his yeah. feet in, in, with the music, like Looney Tunes do, you know, the dum, 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 dum. Mm. It's amazing how burned into my brain this movie is, or this, this cartoon is. And yet I couldn't remember the name of it. I was mm. like searching for Duck Twacy. And oh, yeah, you know, yeah. from that, eventually I got the title, but it's weird. It's weird how much of this I didn't remember. Like, I didn't remember it was a dream sequence. I didn't remember the getting the comic book like I well yeah. I mean, the most memorable part is when he's duck t- duck twacy obviously yeah also interesting that they actually use like straight up Dick Tracy yes they name him and <laughs> he's the parody but he says Dick Tracy when he's reading the comic yeah yeah I, you know there's a lot of great clamping animation in this like mm-hmm. I like a bit where all of the criminals uh jump him and then he slithers through the mob by Dis- dismembering himself all his body parts kind of squirm through the gaps and then reassemble outside of them yeah like Batman yeah <laughs> um, no that's good that's real good yeah yeah uh, like Daffy has different uh, I guess two um, two eras right like mm. he was a crazy loon the first when he was introduced where he'd He'd be the foil for everyone else, and he'd jump around while hooting and stuff, right? He's like Woody Woodpecker, kind of. Yeah. He's like, you know, somebody kind of halfway crosses him, and then he makes it the mission of the rest of this 10 minutes to just torture him. Right. And then he just becomes kind of like a schlamozzle, this kind of uh, self-centered dope who mm. constantly fails, right? Yeah. And I like this wacky Daffy better. Yeah, he's fun. One thing I hadn't realized uh, when I was looking this up, suckering, uh, suckering, suffering succotash is his catchphrase. He says it like six times before Sylvester adopts it. Huh. I guess I hadn't so. really noticed because the voice is basically the same. <laughs> yeah, it's true. True. Um, this has a dark art style that I can't really recognize in any other Looney Tune. Yeah, it's all noir, detective noir story, right? Yeah, literally dark. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a, you know, this cartoon's a delight to watch. It's the same as uh, when I was a kid. Yeah. You know? It's, this is why, this is one of those cartoons that's why Looney Tunes are timeless. I mean, you know, sometimes there'll be something that's a little sexist or a little racist or a lot racist, but... You know, a lot of Looney Tunes just, they're still a good time. You know when he machine guns the door? Speaking of sexist, Mm -hmm. he he machine guns the door and then he opens the door and it's just a pile of villains falling like one after the other. Yeah. I was looking at the trivia for this cartoon and it said there was a well-endowed woman in the midst of all those. (laughs) And so I went frame by frame and thought, ah, well. She really isn't that attractive. <laughs> I got her, but <laughs> she, she doesn't uh, distinguish herself from the monsters that far, but yeah. okay. Yeah, I think uh, I think you have a little bit of crime fighting kind of theme in your cartoon as well. 
Yes. Right. <laughs> no, I've got I've got racism to some extent um, right. in mind. I've got the fresh vegetable mystery. This is a Max Fleischer job. Uh, mm. Max Fleischer, of course, uh, best known for Mighty Mouse and the what were they? Mighty Heroes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and the first stint of Popeye. Yes. Yes, of course. Ahem. So this is from 1939. The oldest one on this show. Or this specific this episode. episode. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, you watch those friggin' like that, how a mosquito operates, but... Yeah, right. Yeah, so this is 1939, directed by Dave Fleischer. So we were talking last time, we got... Was it last time or the time before that we were talking about these cartoons that have a theme of, um, you know, the books or paintings after hours coming to life? Right. So this is in that vein. Um, this one takes place after hours in a kitchen or pantry or something like that. Some food place. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I guess it must be a kitchen because there's yeah. uh, appliances. Hmm. Uh, this And all the anthropomorphized vegetables are bedding down because it's 730. Hmm. <laughs> uh, notably, a mother carrot is putting her baby carrots to bed. There is a gag here that I didn't get okay. until I did some research into it and actually found the script for this cartoon. And the script actually lays out the gag because the um, the the baby carrots are sleeping in a gold dish. Mm. And it says, you know, it's a gold dish because it says on the side 14 carat. OK. And there's 14 carats. It's it's like the bed for 14 carats. Uh-huh. I that totally went over my head. It's got like, layers. <laughs> I was like, why is there such an expensive dish here? Right. Anyway, so this mom carrot is putting the baby carrots to bed and then. Oh, boy. Want some stereotypes? Want some racism? Get this. An Irish potato policeman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a Venn diagram. And then a fourth Irish stereotype is added when the policeman goes to get a beer. Yep. The it's I looked it up. This cartoon was about seven years after the end of Prohibition. So they're allowed to drink, but still there's basically what happens is this police spud goes to the <laughs> hole in the wall cafe, which is a hole in a uh, crate of root beer mm. and gives the secret knock on the side. And they pass him a, a a cup of I guess it must be root beer. But the thing is that a, a potato is a root vegetable. So to him, it's just beer. <laughs> OK, sound the, reasoning. Funny joke, um, not in this, but somewhere else. Like, I remember there was um, here in Vancouver, there were a couple of famous uh, Swedish hockey players, Daniel and Henrik Sedin. They were twins. And they there was a thing that I saw on the news or something once where they they took him to the Vancouver Aquarium and gave him a quiz about fish. Mm -hmm. And their prize was a bag of Swedish fish candy. Yay. And the uh, Swedish fish. And the reporter asked totally earnestly, he was like, do you have Swedish fish in Sweden? And whichever Sedine it was, either Henrik or Danville, just without missing a beat, he just goes, yeah, they're called fish. Ah, OK. It's perfect. I think I saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, he gets his uh, 
illicit beer for free because, you know, he's a crooked cop, as we will see. <laughs> um, some hours pass, which is depicted by a good gag that I've never seen before. I've seen all kinds of gags of hands on a clock doing things. Mm-hmm. I've never seen the hands on a clock walk. Mm. Like they just step around the clock until it like swishes around and it's midnight. Mm. And once midnight comes, a shadowy figure in a cloak with horns that are like the steel tongs of a nutcracker or something. He comes stalking out into the pantry. My research, I, I told you that I found the script for this. Um, right. The research says that this character was known internally as the Shadow Menace. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shadow Menace snatches the baby carrots, and the hysterical carrot mom summons the police potato from his drunken stupor. She explains the situation, and this is really Popeye style, with them yeah. like flailing around with voices that don't really match the... Uh, the script does not have specific dialogue here. <laughs> yes, it's recorded after or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, as she explains, she is also stolen. And the culprit leaves behind a note on a knife that warns, beware. The policeman cowers at first, and then he runs. He's assaulted by these... <laughs> it's It's amazing timing. These... This is another ridiculous thing. It's almost as ridiculous as that flying rabbit. Uh, There's a curtain flapping in the wind, which knocks over all these soda bottles one by one, which causes their bottle caps to go flying off like gunshots. Um, And so the the policeman is kind of uh, assaulted by these. The shadow menace stows the carrots in a hole in a wall behind a jar of vinegar. And then tries to stop the police potato by trapping him in a prison of forks. The potato gets his courage back now. And after (laughs) being attacked by the villain with a seltzer spray, the copper tracks the kidnapper down to the root beer crate bar. And he summons all the rest of the potato police, all Irish, from their burlap sack headquarters. (laughs) (laughs) And they... They all rush into the bar to, if you'll pardon the pun, root out the culprit. Ooh. Now, we got to talk about what happens next. I love I love that they've got matches as their billy clubs. Yes, yes. <laughs> I yeah. love that they're just pushing all those vegetables out of the bar and whacking them as they go. They're just beating the <laughs> hell out of them. Yeah. This, you know... <laughs> When you watch cartoons, you see a lot of violence. Yeah. And you see, you know, you see a lot of, you know, police getting rough and tough. This is the most amazing sequence of police brutality I've ever seen. Yeah. So first they march all these vegetables out of the bar. They're all, they're beating every one of them nonstop with their matchsticks. Yes. And then they just start torturing them like the Bush administration. Oh, yeah, but we can only hope that their torturees made puns like these guys. Oh, my God. They put <laughs> they put an ear of corn in a toaster to make him pop. Yeah. They there's <laughs> there's a relatively benign scene with a couple of drunk onions who are pickled onions by a pickled onion jar. Yeah. They they crush an orange in a juicer. Mm. Talking about, you know, they'll squeeze it out of you. They'll juice them, boy, whatever. Um. 
they they try to fry an egg. They're all this is so creepy. They're gathered around this drunk egg on a yeah, pan sure. and they're like they're like doing villainous laughter and yeah. like you'll fry. And they turn on the heat and and he says the the egg says that he's hard the yolk's on you. I'm hard boiled. But he's still, you know, it's still a hot pan and he starts jumping like ow, ooh, ow. And this this crowd is just cheering on as this egg is tortured to death. Well, I mean, I, I guess not to death because he's eventually saved. But like I, there's a shot when, when the shadow menace shows up again. You see in silhouette, in shadow, all the like the cheering, like the, all the potatoes have their arms in the air. Like, her, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, like it's they're, amazing. They're leering faces. Ugh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. And I, yeah, I was impressed too. They have the uh, uh, like a parody of the good cop, bad cop thing too, where yeah, one of them is yeah. sweet to him, one of them is mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Huh. All with an Irish accent, of course. Um, so yeah, eventually the egg gets saved when the uh, shadow menace shows up again and just kind of switches places. He puts all the potatoes in the pan with a basket on top of them, hmm. but they escape and cool their feet, and a chase ensues. The thief holds them off with a rolling pin and a waffle iron and some other hijinks of, like, dodging their brutality. Finally, the police get an egg beater, and it's their kind of police car, I guess, and they they use Mm. this egg beater to catch up. Meanwhile, one potato has found the kidnapped carrots in the wall, and they're trapped in a mousetrap. And the reason for this is because that when the egg beater tangles the stalker's cloak... It's revealed to be four mice in a trench coat with a pair of pliers. Uh, I didn't know what this tool was. The script says it is pliers. Yeah, look like pliers. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you, I too look. I looked at the um, their model sheet and the, declared yeah. them the Shadow Menace. As I was curious, I when I watched this cartoon, I wondered if there was some sort of. Uh, some sort of generation gap, and this was some tool I just didn't understand. Yeah, me too. No, it's a, it's it's like a cloaked figure with pliers for a head. You know, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, yeah. you know what this might be? This mm. might be the specific tongs or pliers that you use to handle ice. I don't think so. That's kind of yeah. like, those are usually open really wide and they have sharp points, right? Well, for the big blocks that you would put in your oh, yeah, ice yeah. chest before they had refrigeration. But like maybe, you know, if you have a little bowl of ice that you're like uh, picking single cubes out of. Maybe. I don't know. The script says it's pliers. So yeah. whatever. Anyway, so these four mice uh, try to escape into a mouse hole. But it turns out that the mouse hole is a ruse put on by the police. They just got a board and cut a mouse hole in it, I guess. And the mice actually end up trapped in a cage where they begin to squabble amongst themselves with some more puns about, are you a man or a mouse, you rat, whatever. Mm. Uh, and that's the end. You know, you poo-pooed the uh, tactics of these police officers, but they get results. Well, yeah, but none of it would be admissible in court. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Boy, this is that is the story of this cartoon is like, I mean, you know, there's some cute puns, like there's some cute gags where like there's, you know, there's this one onion snoring into another onion's face and the onion has to put a clothes peg on his nose because his breath is so bad. Right. Yeah. Um, but 
the real story is like the tactics of these police. You know, Holy these, smoke. these old cartoons. Yeah. I think they give me, hmm, what does it say? Like, I almost feel like it's insincere when, you know, when people make a racist joke, but the idea is I know that it's racist, therefore I'm not racist and it's funny. Yeah. It's kind of insincere in a way, but I kind of get that same kind of thrill watching these old cartoons and seeing the <laughs> police brutality and stuff and the and the stereotypes and it's it's so wrong. Yes. But it's also it's almost a hundred years ago. Well and better wrong than boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, message yeah, to say, but that's true, yeah. I get a thrill with being shocked, you know? Being, no, that's uh, true. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I had the same reaction. I was just watching it with my jaw dropped like, oh, my <laughs> God, what are these police potatoes doing? <laughs> I mean, the the Irish stereotype that was expected. Like, OK, I think, oh, there's some potatoes. Oh, yeah, he's Irish, of course. And it, well, it, it kind of all three kind of showed up at once where it's like it was because the um, the burlap sack that he came out of said Paddy's potatoes. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, OK, it's Irish potatoes. And then he came out wearing a policeman's hat. I was like, oh, okay, it's Irish potatoes, policeman. Mm. This all makes sense for a 1939 cartoon. Oh, I mean, especially Fleischer. Fleischer, even, man. Yeah. I mean, I mean, think about the, even like 30 years later, the Batman cartoon, or not cartoon, the live action Batman. Like, right. the police chief was still Irish. Like, that, <laughs> well, that yeah. stereotype didn't go away. It kind of floats into The Simpsons, right? The Simpsons is so old timey in a way, <laughs> right? This like their influence was all this stuff. Everybody's yeah. got to be an undignified caricature. Yeah, yeah. What a weird now, cartoon. Did you look at the voice actors in this? <laughs> we no. Got, we got Pinto Kolvig, still oh. a great name, who voiced Bluto, Pluto, and Goofy. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jack Mercer. Who is Popeye mm. and Margie Hines, who is Olive Oil, mm. Fleischer Studios. It all makes sense. It, none of I didn't know any of that, but none of it yeah. surprises me. It all yeah. it all makes sense. Like that's at this point. Who else are you going to use? As an adult, I have an appetite for these kinds of like as a kid, I would have thought these cartoons were trash. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would have avoided them. And do you remember on Pee Wee's Playhouse, they would have. Uh, Penny cartoons some of the time, but then I guess they lost the contract or or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And they started showing cartoons like this. In fact, this one as well. Huh. And again, I, they'd show like two minutes of it, so they'd be incomprehensible, right? But um, <laughs> yeah, it's like it, it's it's almost like the weird, unrecognized ancient TV shows or movies that would show up in the uh, fantasy sequences of Muppet Babies. Right, where it's right. just like this weird thing, and you have no idea where it came from, but you know it's not Muppet Babies. But you know, as an adult, I'm I'm watching these Fleischer and Terry tunes, and you know they become part of my algorithm, and mm. they're kind of interesting. I said before that I got a new appreciation for Popeye. I never liked Popeye as a kid. Now mm. I think, well, because I mean the later Popeyes were trash, but yeah, like now you look back at the early Popeyes, and they're. They're fantastic cartoons. Yeah. And I guess it's a similar thing where you see something like this and like it's hard to overlook what happens in this cartoon. But at the same time, 
if you go into it with the understanding that that's what it is, it's kind of like when I watched um, some of the World War II propaganda. What was that Donald Duck one? Um, the Der Fuhrer's Face. Yeah. I watched that one specifically knowing that it was going to be full of, like, racist stereotypes. Mm. And so once so you're like, okay, I, I'm not agreeing with this. I, this is something that happened and I just want to watch it. And it's a similar thing with this where, like, I didn't know it was coming. But <laughs> at the same time, it's like, okay, it's, <laughs> it's hard to see these cops as good guys. Yep. Well, yeah. Um, hmm. Well, how do we what? transition? Oh, okay. This is the yeah. oldest. How about this? I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay, okay. This is the oldest cartoon in this episode. Now, what's the newest? Ca- Come to think of it, I'm it's just looking new- at it right now. Yeah. I had one from 39. Do you have one from 93? One from 93 pretending it's 47. <laughs> um, okay, so I got Trail Mix-Up. Directed by Barry Cook in 1993. This is a Roger Rabbit cartoon. And while I find it hard to believe that anyone listening to this podcast doesn't know about who framed Roger Rabbit, here's the basics anyway. That movie is a film noir about a Hollywood in 1947 where cartoon characters are real and their films are made by elaborately filming their antics. Roger Rabbit is a star and his in-world cartoons are about him haplessly trying to keep a mischievous but danger-proof baby named Herman from hurting himself. Usually under threat from the mother. Well, I'll get to it here. Um, Okay. So this begins with Roger Rabbit and baby Herman. They're at a campsite. Herman's burly mom leaves to go hunting, but she makes clear in no uncertain terms that Roger must take care of baby Herman or she will end his life. She earlier threatens him with a knife when baby Herman cries <laughs> because he can't get cookies. A callback to something's cooking the cartoon from the beginning of Roger Rabbit. And she's armed with a shotgun. So, you know, she means business. <laughs> Roger tries to start a fire for a weenie roast, but his real life wife, Jessica Rabbit drives up in a role as the forest ranger. It's a gratuitous cameo in all senses. By the time she exits, Roger is so hot and bothered that he operates the fire-starting bow fast enough to start a fire that instantaneously, cartoonishly burns him to a crisp. And I guess Jessica Rabbit got a contract with Maroon Studios after the events of the movie. I guess? Hmm. Um, Well, it wouldn't have been directed by R.K. Maroon. No. But this still bears the studio name. Um, yeah, I think this one specifically says that it's directed by R.K. Maroon, though. Oh, maybe she used to, maybe she used to work for the studio. I don't know. Maybe she's got multiple hats. Yeah, I mean, she, she she's a tune. That's what tunes do, generally speaking. Yeah. Um. Anyway, later, baby Herman flicks a caterpillar at Roger, and that causes him to freak out and fumigate the area so excessively that he becomes sick and the trees wilt. Did you see, did you see the gag? I, I was looking at his little atomizer, his bug spray. Yeah. And it said mink off on it. Hmm. And I was like, what? Why, why is it mink off? There's no minks here. Is there a joke? Uh, turns out a guy named mink off was the co-executive producer. 
Oh. Makes so no sense still. It's a little in-joke. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, the, the baby continues his bug fascination by following a bee to its hive. As is the course of the relationship, Herman gets safely to the ground by luck, while Roger gets the hive stuck on his head. Horribly stung, he runs from the bees and hides in the lake. But there, he's chased by a shark fin, which is actually a cruel trick by Droopy from Underwater. Droopy Dog from MGM. Yeah, Droopy um, cameos in all the Roger Rabbit cartoons. Yeah. Uh, kind of weird, right? Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a different era, right? Because today, uh, all these cartoon characters are owned by big media conglomerates. Mm-hmm. And I think back in the day, MGM was just like, oh, we can use our old property and keep the lights on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so they were okay putting Droopy in all of these Amblin Entertainment cartoons, Disney cartoons, essentially. Yeah. So... Everything is going on right now, it seems, because a tree-felling beaver carves a path through the forest and accidentally bites Roger's butt, and the pain sends him sky high. Herman follows the buck-toothed doggy, as he calls the beaver. Uh, the various trees the beaver fell became part of an automated sawmill process, and that leads to the baby and beaver in peril of being drawn into the buzz saws. Pure luck saves Herman and the beaver, while Roger is squished by logs and then torn into many smaller versions of himself. Uh, first, I want to note, uh, he's got the same power as Popey the Performer, I guess, of being cut and turning into many versions of himself. <laughs> but also, this is our third dangerous sawmill on Animation <laughs> Celery. <laughs> Woo, dude! <laughs> oh, man. So many uh, sawmills in cartoons. Yeah, cliches, man. Yeah. So, reconstituted, the rabbit suffers much abuse as the trio ride down the log on a chute and then the river. They pick up a hapless uh, fishing bear whose fishing line becomes like a water ski cord. The now quartet go over the waterfall get sprung back into the air by a very, very rubbery tree branch, land on a boulder and topple it, then fall into a geyser spout, and then get that gets plugged up by the boulder. The geyser erupts and launches Roger, Baby Herman, the beaver, the bear, the log, and the boulder out of the film studio of the cartoon and all the way to Mount Rushmore, which is destroyed. Now, I had seen all of the Roger Rabbit cartoons but it had been a while. Mm -hmm. So before this point of this watching, I was feeling like, you know, I wish these shorts showed the real world studio like in the movie. <laughs> well, yeah, they all do, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So baby Herman breaks character and chides Roger for destroying a national monument. But Roger defends that it's not like the end of the world. And then he plants the flag that looks like it looks like the American flag, but actually it's made from his tattered clothes. And surprise, the puncture from the flagpole makes Earth deflate like a balloon and zoom around the cosmos. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's the end of this one. Yay. I so for me, mm -hmm. like I I like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like and I and I every time, you know, it breaks out of the the cartoon and it's like, oh, no, wait, they're filming it. Like, you know, that's fun. At the same yep. time, though, I can't help feeling like 
if that ha- well, there's two things. One, if that happened, it wouldn't be in the final product because if they're yeah, presenting like this, yeah. if they're presenting this as the cartoon that was made in 1947, this wouldn't be in it. And the other thing is, how would they film him going flying across to South Dakota? That's where he's right. And also, Montreal. what was yeah. scripted? Like, they're they're reacting like this wasn't the plan. <laughs> Like, how did they intend for this cartoon to end? Maybe this is the way they made all their cartoons. And in the movie, we're actually watching the cartoon finish properly. Huh. I can I can give you... What is the stars? I can give you stars! Like, that's yeah, yeah. the actual end of the cartoon, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, it's hard to complain, but this... It looks pretty decent like it looks it does a kind of a cuphead almost job of looking like a 1947 cartoon yes except except for the way it's animated it's animated way too well like well it's animated with a team like a big team not four guys yeah 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 (laughs) i Um, guess if we're like there's two there's two rival things here one this isn't animated like an old cartoon would be, but two, it's not animated at all. It's filmed. True. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, the, the conceit is that they're not drawing this. They're like, they're just filming what happens like any other well, movie. This is the draw to me of these Roger Rabbit cartoons that it is so uh, grandiose, mm-hmm. right? Like me describing that where they, you know, they, they zoom down the river and then over a waterfall and bounce off a tree branch and land on a boulder. And then they fall with the boulder and all fall into a geyser. The boulder falls on top of them. The geyser erupts. Like, that's really kind of the tempo of what's going on in these things. Yeah. And I remember uh, watching the movie and the Something's Cooking cartoon. And with Roger, like, um, I think a tea kettle is on his head. And he's running around in a circle, like, around the whole... Like in a really impressive shot, he's running around the whole kitchen and there's like, you know, knives that propel into a falling ironing board. And it's just crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Um, And it is spectacle. It Mm -hmm. is fun to watch. I mean, and, you know, the the bit where they're going down the log chute, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And uh, there's like, okay, this wouldn't have been digitally done together. So it's got... um, it's got uh, multiplane parallax going on with things whizzing in the foreground and background. And and then you get a point of view of going down the thing. And, you know, it's kind of funny because Steven Spielberg, I think. No, is it George Lucas? Steven Spielberg. He was involved in the production yes, of this. Yes. Um, and he, um, he produced uh, The Adventures of Tintin much, much later. It's got this kind of madcap stuff, but it's much worse. Hmm. It works in Roger Rabbit to me. Uh, and, and yeah, I enjoy all that stuff. Now, Roger Rabbit himself, I think he's not a great character and he suffers from not having Eddie Valiant to play off of. Yeah, I've never really like, I mean, he's fine in the movie, but like, yeah, he's not a great character. Well, I think there's a reason they made three of these and not more. <laughs> um, you know, he, I'd like some of the ways he's drawn at times in this. Mm-hmm. Um, He's voiced by Charles Fleischer, who's like a stand-up comedian and and I guess just a general kind of actor comedian persona. And yeah. this was before I had much of a concept of the people who portrayed, like aside from Mel Blanc, whoever we talked about, right? You know, that 
we were kids when this movie came out and, you know, they promoted it with this guy. And I thought that was cool. I saw some of his stand-up, not, not in person, on, on TV. Yeah. Um, there's one bit that I remember forever. And I don't think anyone thinks it's funny except me. <laughs> <laughs> it's his bit about people who have names that are verbs. So he's saying like, uh, uh, Neil, stand up. Neil, stand up. Bob, stop that. Pierce, ooh, Lance, ow. <laughs> has this whole segment there. <laughs> um, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I cover some of the other voices here. Um, so this is Animation Celery. Mm-hmm. Frank Welker is the beaver and the bear. <laughs> and he's also possibly various animals I saw during my walk today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. April Winchell is Baby Herman's baby voice and the mama. Mm-hmm. And I learn also Peg Pete for all you horn dogs. Yep. And uh, Clarabelle Cow for all you oblique horn dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, she is also hor- the mm-hmm. horse. She's also the horse in um, Wander Over Yonder. Oh, okay. Whose name I don't recall. Hmm. You well, can tell April Winchell because she, her thing is to sound normal and then like, alternate into this really like feral yelling like when she sounds angry you can see it peg does it a lot but yeah the mother does here where she like i won't do it into this microphone but she'll like she suddenly her voice just changes into this this deep like angry right, right. voice. like that's that's kind of her trademark mm-hmm. and i also know cory burton i love gruffy gummy but he's not a good droopy <laughs> Um, you know, something I did not know until this week when I was looking up this when, well, I guess last week when I was looking at this cartoon Mm -hmm. and I'm going to sound like the biggest idiot in the world for someone who has a podcast about cartoons. Okay. I did not know that Kathleen Turner was the voice of Jessica Rabbit. Get out of here. Get out of here. I I don't know what to say. I can't defend myself. You thought it was just somebody sounding like I, Kathleen Turner? I had no idea. I, I never thought about it. Huh. I never thought about the voices. The only the only voice in Who Framed Roger Rabbit that I really thought much about. Well, I guess there's two. Like I knew that. OK, I knew that Roger Rabbit was somebody who I hadn't heard of before. Yeah. I detected June Foray as the ugly version of Jessica that Eddie tails. Okay. And uh, Louina the hyena, I think is her character. Oh name. yeah. Yeah. And there's one other one. There was one other voice in that. Oh, uh, that one of the, um, one of Eddie's bullets is voiced by Johnny, De- not Johnny divine. Is that his name? Andy divine, Andy divine. Okay. Um, he was, um, a famous radio actor in the old days. He was also people here might know him as Friar Tuck in Disney's Robin Hood. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got he's that the drunk mustachioed bullet, right? Yeah, he's got that distinct wheezy kind of I can't do Andy Devine. Get he's got out that distinct, of my church. Yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah, he's got yeah. that distinct wheezy voice. But right. that's all I thought about for the voices in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I knew Roger Rabbit was somebody who's 
whose name I didn't know, but was not important as far as I knew. I recognized yeah. June Foray, and I knew that Andy Devine was one of the bullets. That's it. Hmm. So I'm an idiot. Hilarious. That's that's foolish on my part. I can't think of his name, but I think the cab from Roger Rabbit is the uh, uh, the bus driver from Cats Don't Dance. <laughs> Maybe. I didn't come up because I didn't realize Roger Rabbit would be a thing for us. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, oh, also another credits note for this. Uh, years before she was ruining Star Wars with her X chromosomes, Kathleen Kennedy was the executive producer on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And she uh, was one of the producers on these cartoons as well. Hmm. Yeah. It's funny. These, uh, these six, seven minute cartoon shows, <laughs> they feel like a big whirlwind of stuff. Yeah. We should probably go. Oh, right. but 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 we we gotta we gotta, gotta talk set. about next time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, would you like to? Well. Yeah. We we um, have an idea. We have an idea for what to do next. And um, Micah, go ahead well, and tell us. We did it with Rescue Rangers. We picked random episodes. We rolled the dice to see. Uh, by a sample of random three episodes, if it deserved as much hate as I give it. Hmm. And the new target is Garfield and Friends. I've trashed it on the show. We're going to pick three episodes at random and see if my uh, my hatred is warranted. All right. So, Matsy, do you have a 121-sided uh, die ready? Okay. I got some dice. Do you have an episode list? Yes, there will be some arithmetic involved, but yeah. There's 121 episodes of Garfield and Friends. So I'm going to roll this. Yeah. All right. Here's the first one. It is going to be the number 28. Oh, God. Okay, we're going to be looking at... 28, which there's three segments on the show. It's going to include Binky Goes Bad, Hmm. Barn of Fear, and Mini Mall Matters. All right. So that's one episode. Episode number two will be 65. Okay. So the titles of the three parts are Speed Trap. Flights of Fantasy and Castaway Cat. Hmm. All right. And now the tiebreaker episode, in case one is good and one is bad. No chance. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. 116. Hmm. So five from the top, I guess. Okay, 116. The titles are Thoroughly Mixed Up Mouse. The Old Man of the Mountain and <laughs> Food Fighter featuring guest voice George Foreman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Dice. <laughs> thank you, Dice, that my sister brought me from England for <laughs> this gift. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay, so we'll watch that hilarious Garfield next week. Until then, let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think we should watch. Be sure to tell all of your friends about the show. Tell me about the show. I'm at AC Matsy on Twitter. Yeah, tell everyone about this greatness. I'm at Drab Swatch. And uh, to finish everything up, Matsy, I'm going to need your help here. Uh, okay. I need a I need a cartoon character. Pussyfoot. Okay. Now I need a funny food. Uh, boy, my mind went straight to lasagna, but no. Um, <laughs> we'll. Um, how about pancakes? A place with a lot of people. Um, Times Square. And a mood. Morose. All right. Pussyfoot sat in pancakes at Times Square in front of everyone. Pussyfoot was very morose as she delivered the Celery Stalker's slogan. Trying the old shell game, eh? <laughs> I'll fry, see? You'll fry. Poor Pussyfoot. Yeah. Sat in some pancakes. <laughs> Yeah, she'd probably be happy there. She'd probably just snuggle up in the warmth. Right, right. Mark Anthony would fold it over her. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>